about to enter a world of pain, suffering, and laughter. Jeff, I didn't see you there. Oh, Mike, how you doing, buddy? I didn't even. Uh, we're, we're in the same room. Weird. Yeah, good. Yeah, so, we should probably do a podcast then together. Let's. Hey, look at this. I got my equipment right here. <laughs> I've got uh, our. We got these microphones Kismet. here. We've got an episode all ready to go. Might as well do it. We're listening to Worst Gig Ever with you here on the podcasting channel. I am Mike Pace. <laughs> I'm Jeff Garlock. Uh, and this Big week... Big news, we started the podcasting channel. That's the we first We did. This is, uh, this, is, this is a new venture. Right now, it is just us, but we're talking to some people. Uh, we're talking to Mike Bloomberg. He's going to do... Uh, it's going to blow up. The Bloom Podcast. <laughs> Bloom Pod. <laughs> it's going to be a Bloom Pod. It's going to be good. Uh, and especially because this week... There's no look at this, especially because Matt LeMay is our guest this week. Matt LeMay of the band Get Him Eat Him. He is a uh, a writer for Pitchfork and the AV Club, among other uh, sites. Thirty three and a third. He has uh, written a thirty three and a third, and third, and a third book. Uh, Elliot Smith. Elliot Smith about right. the uh, uh, either or record. Uh, so pick that up. He's got a lot of stuff out there and he's also got a lot of tales i mean a lot we're talking some he's got some fantastic tour stories from when get him eat him was on the road they were a young band literally everybody in the band was like 20 years old right i mean there's some tales here that made jeff and myself run out of the room matt was just matt was just talking into a microphone by himself in a room because these stories were so we amazingly horrific because they were so well funny. we were meeting with mike bloomberg about the yeah, podcast well, we did, we're doing the pod- some other work i think the uh, podcast network that's it it's exactly. just it's simple it's to the point it's gonna happen you're gonna love the way you look when you listen uh but look it's a new year it's uh you know, in with the old, out with the new, uh, whatever. And we're yeah. hoping, we're hoping that this is actually getting to you. Like we're right now, this we're banking. Oh, that's right. That the Mayan apocalypse did not. Full happen. discretion, according to Worskig ever here, is that we're taping this before the Mayan apocalypse, before one one thirteen. So this could be the last remaining uh, uh, archival. Uh, footage right. if you will so, of human civilization right so if you know if you're the the last uh, human survivor and you're trying to start civilization again you need like a guide uh use this i think it'll really t- it'll tell you what not to do exactly uh, it'll tell you don't do that don't start a band uh there are certain things like uh, you know for those of you listening to this you find this some other things you got to know diarrhea poo poo uh you know fart fart cars burp not yeah, cars don't burp, but just cars burp, vomit. <laughs> and, uh, oh, and also cars burped. Car <laughs> in our time. Well, they do because of the gas they produce. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, so, but hopefully you get this. Hopefully that you're listening to this, and it's a great episode. Yeah. Um, and uh, let us know. Let us know that uh, that the world didn't end. Uh, shoot us an email at worstgigever 
at, po- at a podcast.com. <laughs> no, that's, we, ha- we haven't <laughs> said We haven't started yet. That's the old, that's going to be the new email. The old one, though, send it over to worstgigever at gmail.com. It will be forwarded to worstgigever at the podcast <laughs> network. Exactly. Dot com. Uh, subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us, leave us some feedback. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, go to worstgigeverpodcast.tumble.com. Listen to some other episodes. We've got a whole. If you want. If you, yeah, if you want to get a, a sense of what the year 2012 was like. In podcasting. We got it all right here. <laughs> we got it here. Stay tuned. Check out the podcastnetwork.org. Listen to Matt LeMay. Oh, we got .org. I thought it was going to be .biz. Well, well, we got lucky. We okay. got lucky there. And uh, Lahadnik Nair Shell Hanukkah. Best of luck to everybody. <laughs> Vomit diarrhea. I don't have a culture. <laughs> I don't have anything to say. Go. So the one that my mom just reminded me of on the phone, because it was many, one of many times that she feared for my life. Um, we played a show in Dayton, Ohio. This must have been January of 2006 um, at a venue called Elbows, which I don't think exists anymore for good reason. We got there. Our, our call sheet said we should show up at, at 6 o'clock, I think, for sound check, and we were always way too good about showing up on time. <laughs> Um, so we got there at six and nobody was there. The club was boarded up practically and the club was also under the parking lot for a Greyhound station. Um, Greyhound station in Dayton, Ohio, not really a place you want to hang out. Not good so, clientele? Don't no. Well, it, it gets, weird. it gets better. Yeah. So you'd think, why is there an indie rock club mm-hmm. right next to a Greyhound station? But, it was only an indie rock club a couple nights a week. Every other night, it was a strip club. Sure. So we went and had some food, and we came back around 7.30. They were just starting to get the place set up. Um, I was outside of the club on the phone, and there were shady things happening. People kept walking into the club and walking out looking really angry. Um, I walked into the club, got off the phone, and... At about the same time, one of these angry-looking gentlemen walked in and asked where the strippers were. Um, so apparently that was why everybody looked so disappointed. They were going in hoping to see strippers, um, and instead it was us. Um, so uh, getting a sense of the situation, I walked back outside. I was outside for about 30 seconds when uh, a young man, probably late teens, who looked kind of like a skater, just kind of pulled me aside and said, dude, you're going to get stabbed in the face if you stand out here for five more minutes. This is where people get stabbed in the face. Why are you standing outside of this Greyhound station looking so robbable? And I explained the whole situation to him. Um, we, as per usual, had about five guest list spots we were not using because we didn't know anybody there. Sure. So I, I invited our young skater friend to attend our show for free, and he kind of sized me up and just went, nah, and walked away. <laughs> uh, so that was a fun night. So uh, how was the actual show? Oh, God, I don't even remember. I'm sure it was terrible. <laughs> why, what did you, yeah, why, uh, why, who was booking it there? Do you even know, like, did it look like the promoter was somebody who knew what they were doing, or? I... I got the sense that, because I remember we were paid well for that show. Right. Um, I got the sense that somebody had invested in this club and uh, was trying to turn it into, mm-hmm. you know, the cool new nightlife spot in Dayton, Ohio. Right. There were always a number of shows like that on every tour where you figured somebody had money and was putting it up in the hopes of 
creating a scene out of nothing in, you know, Wilmington, North Carolina right. or right. Dayton, Ohio. And someone's going to give uh, New York and L.A. a run for their money. Exactly. <laughs> hey, those, those fans Ohio. have to stop somewhere between Columbus and Cincinnati. Yeah. Sure. So let's just uh, backtrack for a second. The band is getting to meet him. Yes. Um, and uh, what's notable is that you guys, for the most part, were all really young when yes. you started touring so in 2006 because uh full discretion as we say on the podcast full discretion. oxford collapse and get him eat him had had done some uh uh brief tour dates together in 2005 yes. there's some nepotism here there we go yeah, yeah. uh calling as many favors as we can <laughs> uh and at the time like most of the band was not even of drinking age yes when we did our first tour i was the only member of the band who was over 21 Mm -hmm. um, wow. which became an issue a number of times was on that, that tour. Was that in 2005? Or? That was in 2005. So okay. the show we played with Oxford Collapse and Constantine's at yeah. North Star Bar in Philadelphia. Um, oh, when the, fuck that place. Yeah, seriously, <laughs> yeah. fuck that place. I mean, I've seen shows there that I've liked a lot. Um, it's a good space in some ways. But whoever was running the club that night got wind of the fact that we were mostly underage right. and told us, First, he said, you're not playing. Get the fuck out of my club, basically. Um, which, you know, nowhere in our contract, which was signed, was it stipulated that we had to be a certain age right. or that we couldn't perform or anything of that sort. Um, so the compromise we reached, which is hardly a compromise, is that the members of the band who are under 21, which is everybody except me, is not they're not allowed to leave the club to set out foot outside the club and then re-enter. So if they walked out, for example, to unload our gear, right. then that's it. You're not allowed back in to see the other bands. And we were first of three, and we really wanted to see the other bands. It was our last night on those bills. Um, so and there's nowhere to uh, unload your equipment, like you. Uh, if at North Star Bar, you can't just take your equipment and move it off stage. That's exactly what we yeah. discovered. That's so the we place finished. we talked about with Jared uh, from yes. Big Business. Like, yeah. You just go right out to the street. For the listener, yep. the North Star Bar is a place in Philly, and it would seem like kind of a decrepit neighborhood. Not it's, a good neighborhood. Yeah. And it's like you literally load right onto the stage, right. essentially, from a door. And when you're done, you load right out yeah. to yeah. the street. So we assumed that when we were told nobody could reenter... That meant something other than I would have to load out all of the gear right. by myself, <laughs> one piece by one piece, in this really we shady also, part of Philadelphia. We should also mention that there are five. There five are five. Guys there, guys yeah, the it's a five-person band. We could have, we could have done so in a way which was much quicker and thus much less attractive to derelicts. Right. So it was, it was a sketchy moment. Were you sure. accosted at all? Oh, many times. Yeah. Many, many yeah. times. Meanwhile, I'm. Pouring back as many beers <laughs> as I can by the merch booth. Think we yeah. should help them? No way. <laughs> fed grapes by uh, you right. know. Had we had we known you gents better, I suspect <laughs> we would have enlisted yeah, sorry. you. To... Yeah, that's uh, that was a retrospect. The they also wouldn't give us water. Oh, that's right. You, I, they I, just I, were. They were just like, no, you don't get water. It's not in your contract. Wow. <laughs> it was just like North Star Bar. <laughs> well, I mean, I think both right off the bat, you're, you're hitting us with, with these two stories. The Dayton one, I can empathize with. Oxford Collapse played one of our, if not the worst show we've ever played there. Um, you know, intra-band fighting on stage, my oh, yeah. amp cutting out, uh, and the, the like, uh, headlining band, you know, lent me their amp, which was on the other side of the club. Right. They were outside. Uh, I don't remember the name of the, the venue, uh, and I I don't want to recall it. 
And I said, hey, can I borrow an amp? And the guy from outside said, yeah, go get it. <laughs> and it was, I mean, it was, it, it, the show culminated with our bass player almost getting into a fist fight with one of the guys in this headlining band, except our bass player slipped in a puddle of beer and fell on his face <laughs> and bloodying up his face. Uh, and then we got some of the, uh, st- when you're, in, when you're in Dayton, you get the, fa- uh, what's it called? Not five alarm chili. Uh, the like chili five right, ways, which right. is like spaghetti, yeah, yeah, chili, yeah, yeah. and the yeah. Midwestern. And that was, chili. uh, that was, that was a bad one. So Dayton, I, I assume I you're empathize. not going to let us know who this headlining band was. The headlining band was a band called the Buffalo Killers. Um, Dude, who, I love that it's these fucking well, the, shitty the, venues. I'll tell you this. We're all in the same fucking scenario. Yeah. You're a band that no one's ever heard of, and I still don't know who the Buffalo the Killers The Buffalo Killers are. went on to open for the Black Crows on a couple shows, and there they were go. like a you know big, burly dudes. They were a band um, that was jonesing to get that attitude. They yeah. were just waiting yes. for the moment yeah. that they could pull rank. Probably racist, also. Yeah. 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 Uh, oh, it was also one of these things we were supposed to play, we were supposed to play second, but they asked like, because the, the opening band and the Buffalo Kills were friends, they asked if we would play first. Yeah. Uh, and we're like, you know, come on. You want us to play before Big Local Draw? Get out of here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we had a show like that in Orlando. Um, Oof, already. Yeah. Already. Um, Orlando might be my least favorite city in there's the a, universe. There's a reason. There's, in there's 15 a... years of touring, I've played Florida once. Yes. <laughs> well, okay. What was the, the. I'm sure it was the same place. We played The Orlando. Social, which is sort of I, the one medium size. <laughs> and we got there, and there were a lot of people there, which usually meant that the local band <laughs> had a good draw. Sure. BLD, um, big, big local draw. Yep. And, and the band we were playing with was a band called Summerbirds in the Cellar. Um, and they were the sweetest dudes. Um, their singer actually looked a lot like Chris Cornell, um, which was very <laughs> would, funny to would me. Pre haircut, yeah, pre oh. haircut. <laughs> um, but they were just the nicest, sweetest dudes. They were really excited to be playing with us, which I couldn't figure out. And they were very adamant that we headline. Um, and I, I tried. I was like, no, no, no. It's not about who headlines. It's about as soon as you guys are done, everyone in this room will leave. Right. Um, and they, I think, I don't know if they thought that we were testing them or something, but they were very adamant. No, no, no. You guys are a touring band. You guys are the headliner. Don't worry about it. Um, and at a certain point, we let it go. And sure enough, they played and everybody left. Between our first and third songs, the crowd went from about 100 people to three people who were the opening band. All right. Um, and at the end of the night, I went to get paid and the, the guy who was dishing out money, um, I don't know if he was actually the promoter or not, but he was like, yeah, I'm going to give you guys like 20 bucks and give the rest to, to the local band because they brought everyone out. And I, I kind of had to explain to him, well, that's why you have a local, you know, and, and yeah. we worked it out. We wound up, I think, splitting it or we got more of it. Right. The, the band was super cool about it. Um, but it was just one of those. And that happened to us a number of times. Yeah, where, no, that's, that's definitely happened to us too. And I don't understand that you would think if you have a huge, Headlining are a huge local band. Right. You put this, you put the touring band, the touring band doesn't give a fuck. I mean, unless they're assholes and they're like, well, we got a headline because we're a touring band. Like, you play before the local band. That just, just going to have sense. more people there. And that's, also, most of the time, you've been driving anyways. If you can get done with playing, that's yeah. if you can relax. Yeah. yeah. Yep. We had a policy, we had a policy of, of never loading out during another band set. 
mm-hmm. which we violated exactly once. Uh-huh. Um, I had forgotten about this show. We played at Chennai in New York. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And at Chennai, it's one of those kind of scammy things where they'll just, they just open it up and say, any band who wants to play here, we'll throw you all on a bill together and, People at the door will say who they're there for. We keep the first, you know, 50 people and then right. you get paid after that. Right. So we wound up on, uh, on a bill with a local legend, apparently, who goes by the Mr. Move. Oh, um, I know the Mr. Move. You yep. do? I do know that we wow. played with the Mr. Move num- uh, yeah. a number of times. So. Uh, and no, uh, I don't think we play with him at Chanel. Yeah. He's, he's a guy from Atlanta. So we, yeah. uh, so we, we played to our, you know, 10 friends. And we loaded our stuff off the stage to the side of the stage thinking, you know, we're not going to, you know, he was getting set up quickly. His entire stage setup consisted of a disc man and a giant inflatable middle finger with an American flag print on it. <laughs> um, so he goes up there and he looks a little older, not in very good shape, right. not healthy at all. These things are all true. Um, he's wearing a wife beater and he presses play and some very boilerplate electro clash like starts playing and he just he he picks up the microphone and he starts he starts into this song that goes girls girls they're easy to fuck girls girls they're easy to fuck uh, at this point his five fans who are there start spraying beer all over our equipment they just they do the the whole shebang where they put the thumb over the mouth of the bottle and shake it up and they're covering all of our gear in beer and so we started loading our stuff out and this angered some of his fans who were kind of shoving us and, and jostling us a little bit on our way in and out um i think I think it speaks to our professionalism as a band that that was sure. the one time we ever did that. Um, we'll have the Mr. Move on next yeah, week. Yeah, yeah. counterpoint. These asshole yeah. kids who well, loaded they never their understood during the set. beer move. Hate the beer. But move. you know what? It, you know what's the depressing thing about that is that there's nobody there for him either, and it's one of these shows where yes, like yes. nobody's here, right? You know what's going on. And if you're you know, fighting, you're fighting over scraps. It's right. really yeah. not. It's yeah. not a very dignified those, situation. Those are, for those are, the, and I mean, at least whatever, for whatever it means that it's in New York and you're not having to get in the van and then like find a place to stay or drive, you know, maybe there's some solace in that you could go sleep in your own bed that night. <laughs> we had, we actually had a, it might just be because we played more shows in New York than anywhere else, but we had some of our worst shows locally. We had yeah. actually two of our worst shows were both dance parties. Um, yeah, Mike, well, you were have, at one of those. You okay. were at one of those shows. Refresh my memory. It was at the Syrup Room, which was an illegal venue oh, in Bushwick. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I remember um, that. We, yeah. So, so this thing happened to us three times, where somebody would invite us to play a dance party, and I would always say, "Are you actually sure you want us to play a dance party?" <laughs> was like, "Oh yeah, sure." Then they would listen to us, and by the time we got there, either we'd find out that we were playing before the party actually started. Of course. Or we'd be asked to play one song or something right. <laughs> like that. Um, this happened to us in Boston at a dance party at the Paradise. Yeah. We got invited. This is when we were all at school in Providence. We were about to start recording our second album. Um, we Paradise got Rock Club, where I saw Face to Face. I think we played there as well. Yep. Uh, so we got invited to play a dance party in the front room of the Paradise. Um, and And... I went through the usual, are you sure you want a dance party? Um, And then, you know, I said, well, how much much are we going to get paid? 
And the guy who was putting it on said, I can promise you, you know, I'll give you a guarantee of 200. You guys will probably make 10 times that. Right. And <laughs> which is, of course, what well, with a guarantee <laughs> like that. Yeah. I said, all right, so long as we have a $200 guarantee, you know, that'll cover the hard drive we record the album onto. Right. So whatever, let's yeah. do it. Right. We went up there and we played and it was one of those things where we were supposed to go on early, but this was a dance party. Nobody shows up until late. So we were just sitting around waiting for either people to show up or the promoter to say, you know what, just play to these three people. Right. Um, eventually the latter happened. We played to three people. We played like five songs. Um, and towards the end of the night and, and the promoter after that happened suddenly was nowhere to be found. Um, so I, I found him in, in the sort of back hallway of the paradise. And I said, you know, it was, I said, you know, thank you so much. I'm, you know, this happens sometimes. It's hard to get people out. We totally understand. Um, we'd just like to settle up. And he says, all right, I think we're going to give you guys 20 bucks. Oh, and Jesus. I shot him the deathiest death glare I have ever. <laughs> and he burst into tears. He just immediately <laughs> exploded in tears and just said, Oh my God, don't look at me. How could you look at me like that? And I said, I, I'm looking at you like that because we have a guarantee of $200. Right. And you owe us. And he said, if I pay, if I, if I give you $200, it's going to be my personal money. And I said, yes, that's when you're a show promoter. Yeah, if you had right. made a lot of money, you would have taken home your personal money. And if you guarantee a band a fee for a service, then if you do not make enough money to pay them, you pay them that money. Right. And he, he, while still sobbing, made me walk him to the ATM as if I was, as if I had him at gunpoint. <laughs> I can picture the ATM you walked him to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Saying, if you really, if there's something I have to do, I need you to walk with me to the ATM so you can see that I'm taking this money out of my own account. Yep. I said, okay, <laughs> that's cool. So every step of the way, you sure you're going to make me do this? You're going to make me do this? Oh my God. That's so pathetic. He paid, he paid me the $200. I said, look, no hard feelings. This is <laughs> right. And he, he, he said, will you at least shake my hand and promise you'll never look at me that way again? Wow. This look. And I, I don't want to get this look from you. I've, I've, I've really I would love to know really, what the look is. This is like the, the brown note. Like yeah. It just gets, yeah. it happens and you can't control it. I um, sometimes feel like we should always have like a copy of fucking Rollins get in the van. <laughs> for a situation of just like, you realize it could be worse than this. Yeah. Right. Like, uh, well, first of all, I, I'm... Almost positive that on our first U.S. tour, 2004, the last show we played was one of these paradise dance parties. And, mm -hmm. like, we weren't advertised. People aren't there to see a band. And they right. show up. And then there's, like, oh, there's a band. On. And I remember it was, like, a tough Boston crowd. Like, yeah. very tattooed, like, almost like we were Like converted. FSU was there? Yeah. It was, like, this is where they hung out in right. 2004. Like, they would always go to this weekly or monthly Oh, they probably show. would because uh, we had talked about them. But the guy from 454 work the door there okay like fsu guys work the yeah. door so i think they would like get in like yeah. you know and they i think yep. there was but a period I, where they I, hung out it was definitely like i remember it's like all right guys we're so close to home we've been out for right. a month nobody wants us here let's do the abbreviated you know 25 minute set and then get, and I, it was like during the date dance just, parties yeah. are the worst yeah. like yeah. I, I being on vice like we had to do like more than i liked and they were always like or like vice parties like oh, and yeah. They worked because they would pay for the rest of the tour, usually. Like, if it worked out fine and there was usually some dumb, you know, liquor sponsor, which, yep. you know, broke all of my ideals, but whatever. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I hated them because they were usually, yeah, much later. 
Like, I want to go to bed. (laughs) Like, I hated when they were in Europe. And Europe always, like in Germany, shows turn into the dance party. And then you're like, oh, we have to stay? Yeah. Like, I want to go home. Yeah. But they also, it's just, it's for the most part, it's like the people coming don't expect there to be a band. Or like, they're like, oh, I got It makes you feel the most to me, like, like, uh... It makes you feel the most like you're like a bar band. Like it's yeah. like our version of a bar band where it's just like, I'm just out to see music. Yep. It's like, well, I don't really want to just be playing music. I want to yep. be playing to people who like yeah. this and type of music. We were not a, a good dance party band right. at yeah. all by any stretch. The, the one we played at the Syrup Room, um, it was through a friend of a friend who was putting on these shows. Um, and he invited us and he said, you know, a ton of people are going to come out. This is going to be a crazy good time. The first sign I had that something was not going to be, well, I mean, I, I kind of knew the whole time because it was one of our shows, but he called the day before and said, you guys have a lot of people coming out to this, right? <laughs> um, That's so, what I meant by when I said a, a crazy group of people, like amount of people are going to, because you're going to write right, exactly. Yeah. So we got there and it was a weird scene. Um, very kind of, you know, mid to late aughts, Bushwick. Right. Everyone's already drunk at 5 p.m. Yeah. It was weird. We played super early. I mean, again, I think the guy who booked us actually listened to us and realized that we would ruin his dance party. <laughs> right. Oh, shit. So uh, let's just he, have these guys go on at 7. So exactly. We went on. And, and I remember the moment we got off the stage, about 100 people showed up. Um, so I think that there was – I don't think it was a coincidence of timing that that was the case. Right. But – after so you know we left we packed up our stuff and the promoter called me afterwards and was like hey there's a five thousand dollar guitar missing do you guys have it <laughs> and I, I went uh, I don't think we took a five it was a Gresh White Falcon uh-huh. which is not a guitar you just take by right. mistake right it's it's a, a big white and gold glittery guitar who's bringing a fucking five thousand dollar Gresh guitar to so, the syrup so so the 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 obvious question is why do you have a five thousand dollar Gresh white falcon sitting next yeah. to sitting and this guy was convinced that we had it right he called me about four times saying did you check everything did you check every case uh-huh. as if we would have just not noticed that right. rather than our shitty instruments we had yeah, taken a five thousand dollars it's in a soft gig bag that's yeah like, that's where the correct <laughs> exactly. is like it's in the original chipboard case <laughs> and yeah and i think we took home 50 bucks for that show or something uh. i think maybe he thought that we had Taken the guitar out of spite, right? Which would have actually not been the worst idea, sure. Yeah. But we had no idea it was there, so we couldn't have done that. We also, speaking of Florida shows, when <laughs> we we played in Jacksonville, and this was one of those things where it was on a, a winter tour, the same one where we played in Orlando. The whole Florida leg we booked ourselves right. because there's no good reason to play in Florida, right? So you're left to your own devices. No booking agent who's doing their job will really send you to Florida unless you ask. Except if you're booking a, if your first booking engine is based in Florida, like yes. ours was. There you go. And so we played in Florida, like, so you'll much. kill. No one ever yeah. comes here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this, this woman had approached us on MySpace and said, Hey, I run a club in Jacksonville. We'd love to have you. I'm also a talent scout for Warner brothers. Um, so, you know, when it became clear that we needed to play some shows to fill right. the space, you know, we had a show in Charleston and then a show in, you know, Lafayette, Louisiana or whatever. We had to go somewhere. Um, I reached out to her and I said, hey, you know, we'll actually take you up. And then she said, great, I can pay you 250 bucks and all the booze you want. So, we said, Golden. 
Mm-hmm. And then she said, I think I'm going to fold it in with one of my indie rock dance nights. <laughs> so we, you know, whatever. Um, I guess she also heard us after suggesting this because when we got there, why don't they listen before? <laughs> right. I don't what, know. You know what's... She's really big on letting you know she's a talent scout. Yeah. But yeah. doesn't like listen to CDs. They got a great name. I yeah, mean, exactly. there's yeah. something there. Dollar signs yeah. just flashing. <laughs> um, so we got there and she said, I think you guys, can you guys play one or two songs at midnight? And my I, my first question was, are we still getting paid? And she said, yes. So I said, great. Right. <laughs> one or two songs. I think we did a cover. We did a Blondie cover. And we did... <laughs> A sloppy, drunk version of one of our songs. Uh-huh. Now, was um, this uh, was this post uh, dance party or right before it began? It was in the middle of the dance party. It was like the break from the dance so, party. Did it was grind this... to a screeching halt. Yes, it was. It was actually well timed because it was exactly enough time for everybody to go get a drink right. and then resume enjoying themselves after we were done. Was this post you getting all the booze that you could drink? It was mid us getting okay. all the booze. That was also the night that. What was the name of that club? I do not remember. It was in Jacksonville. It was in Jacksonville. Um, I remember the DJ that night was doing a great job. <laughs> he was doing a really good job. I remember about about three songs in, he put on the Archers of Loaf song, Web in Front. And I wow. said, all right, this is going to be a good night. One way or another. <laughs> Bad show, good night. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, there, that's, uh, that's up there in the, um, uh, you know, however you can break down how the night works. The Bad Show, Bad show Good, good Night. night. Had yeah. one of those that when we played the smell in LA and kept getting shocked by the microphones and then wound up, I've talked about this before, hanging out with the, uh, uh, Brian Grazers, the producer's personal assistant. Right. Wow. Um, yeah, it was great. Night. The getting night. shocked by the microphone situation always drives me nuts because you couldn't ask for less sympathy from the rest of your bands yep when you keep being like no i'm getting shocked <laughs> like don't come near me and i'm freaking out so we because had one they don't night, see anything going on no we had one night um we played at the red star bar in baton rouge louisiana okay uh-huh. yeah um, right there and they did not have their shit together to have bands there <laughs> their equipment was all kind of rigged up and it just you know i remember they were like three not even surge protectors, just three power outlet splitter power strip <laughs> right. things plugged into each other. And we were talking to the bartender beforehand who was super nice. Um, and he was saying, yeah, we have some electrical issues here. No problem for a five-piece band with tons of pedals and sure. lots of vocal effects that go directly into the microphones and whatnot. So we're playing and about three songs in, all the power goes out. Just everything stops. <laughs> right. Um, and we're all, you know, disappointed, but uh, all right, it happens. Then suddenly the power surges back on and I see this giant blue lightning bolt jump <laughs> off the microphone and hit me in the face. <laughs> and I, it hurt like hell and I was shaking. I mean, I was really zapped. I was shaking intermittently right. for the rest of the night. And a lot of our equipment got fried. We had two direct boxes that got fried. And at the end of the night, they would not help us they gave us the hundred bucks or whatever we were owed and our bass player joe to his credit i was freaking out i had just lost it right our bass player went in and got and got them to give us two replacement di boxes wow for the ones that had broken um but that we was gave you fair warning man we yeah, told exactly. you that our club was terrible at the beginning so wait i two questions about that first one being were, were there people at the show at least there were, were about 15 people okay. which was not a bad night for us sure okay in in a place like i think i played the 15 people at that place in baton yeah. rouge as well it's a small bar it's really a bar 
more yeah. than a club. It's just right. a bar, and you set up in a corner. Is that the place that has the upstairs too? I, it might With be a pool table. I don't. Any. The other thing is, is that about when when bands are playing and the power and like they lose power because you see it every once in a while. There's still that like two second delay. When they're still like they don't realize <laughs> yeah. that it's out, so everybody looks ridiculous because right. they're because that, that no one ever. It's not like you immediately jump to action to yeah, start yeah. to fix stuff. Everyone just kind of stands there, which I just like. <laughs> you want to do something about this, or am I going to handle this? It's always it's it's it's, it's incredibly deflating. Yeah. So in all the, so in all these though, or for a big chunk of them, so everyone's very young. Like yes. Too. Like, uh, so what? Yeah. So how old was everyone when it started? And when the band started, I was twenty, and my bandmates were all nineteen. Okay. Um, we actually, I'd say, the fact that most musicians have about that emotional age, right, made it sure. comparable to anyone else's sure. experience. So did you guys start in college? Yeah. Okay. We started in college. I was a sophomore, and my bandmates were all freshmen okay and and then you so you started by the time you started touring you guys were still in college yeah okay. it was we toured the summer between so we, we signed the summer between my sophomore and junior year of college and we started touring to absolutely kosher to absolutely kosher records um we did a really small we drove out to san francisco to record our first album that winter and then we did our first honest to goodness tour summer of 2005 which would have been the summer between my junior and senior years of college now what i'm interested in because i didn't start touring in earnest till i was like 25 Mm -hmm. but i'm wondering like and because you also toured when you were in college yeah right so like the idea of just i don't for some reason i'm thinking i have to like ask my parents permission Uh, that's what i was gonna ask too yeah yeah, what what are what are all the parents thinking Um, like you guys were all getting in we're really supportive we were actually really lucky all of our parents were supportive and were helpful. We were able to use our guitar player Jason's mom's car to tour, which is just like a Chevy Tahoe, which is not a big right. car for five dudes and all of our gear, but it fit. We got a roof rack for it. Um, we were really, our parents were legitimately super amazing right. um, throughout all the years that we were touring. I think it was finally, I remember very clearly because we did three big tours and one small tour. Right. We only toured over the summer because we were all in school. Um, we did three big summer tours. Um, the one in 05, I booked myself and it was long and had, you know, we took a week in Portland to hang out, took a week in LA to hang out. Um, miraculously broke even on that tour. Um, the 06 tour was just three weeks around the country. I think three days off, just to get mm-hmm. as much done as you could. The 07 tour was about six weeks, but it was also super packed because we went up to Canada twice. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of that tour, I remember, I'm sure you gentlemen know that showering when you're on tour is a luxury. Sure. Um, I remember, you know, we, I think we stayed in a motel one night on that tour. It was floor sleeping every night. Right. Um, and the script we came up with to always find a floor to sleep on, which I think is probably the smartest thing I've ever come up with in my entire life. Um, if you ask at least three people at a given venue, right. if they know a place to stay in that city that is both cheap and safe <laughs> one of them will offer you their floor right because nobody knows the, the places to pay to stay in their own right. towns yes and when you say cheap they think oh shit this band is probably dirt poor i'm not right. going to send them what if i say a place and it's too expensive then i look like an asshole right. and safe you know I, I think it's safe but if they get stabbed in the night then i'm responsible for that eventually you will get a floor to sleep on it might right. be the shittiest hardest floor in the world um, but at, at the end of that last tour, 
I remember going to take a shower and looking in the mirror and I, I was covered in bruises all over my chest <laughs> from sleeping on hardwood floors for six weeks yeah. in a row. And I thought to myself, I'm too old for this shit. Yeah. <laughs> I can't, I mean, I was all of 24 at the time, but. <laughs> yeah, that's I how just, I felt when I was old. Well, wait, dude, would, you bring a, <laughs> would you bring a sleeping bag? Yeah, but a sleeping yeah. bag is not. It's only so much. It only it was, it's only so much. much and Justin, uh, Justin Cherno from Panthers, I think. Who was 38 at, at the, the time. time. Yeah, like when we started the band was 30, 31. Uh-huh. Uh, and at, when he left the band was, yeah, in his 38. I would say only like the two last tours he bought a sleeping bag. Adam was the same way. Our he bass would just player. figure it out. Yeah. I was yeah. not that guy. <laughs> no, I was I always was the, But I would also say, to my credit, uh, showering is a luxury. But by God, I, if there was water to be had, oh, I found like, a way. I was, I was always, I, I would be bar, I would be using someone's towel or right. like a washcloth. The only stopped. time I can think of not was, I think maybe in Dayton, Ohio. Mm-hmm. It was in. I can't remember. There was this uh, grind band, Twenty Third Chapter, uh, who became this band Rune, and we mm-hmm. stayed at their house. Uh, and I'm pretty sure there was a crack pipe out on the on the uh, the table, uh, the coffee table. And I looked in there. It just like looked like just filthy and like, yeah. you know, like they didn't have a shower, just a bathtub. Uh, and I remember Jeff from Jerome's Dream, the band we we're on tour with, was the only he took a shower or took a bath. Yeah. Oh, in that's no, that, that's punk. That's no. So we had. Our, our worst, I think probably our, definitely our worst weirdest night and possibly our worst show uh-huh. was in Omaha. Um, and we were excited to play Omaha. We knew nothing yeah. about the town. Yeah. Or, by, by the, uh, it should be said for the listener, by the time you cross like Minneapolis and the terrain starts to change, it's like, yeah. it's really fun. And yeah. Omaha is part of that. Yeah, exactly. We were Where excited. Where was it in Omaha? I forget. It was at a bar okay. on a corner. I forget the name of it. I think um, I played there. Connor uh, Oberst's bar. Yeah, well, I played there. That was a shitty <laughs> show for us. Um, I think we played that. Too. And I remember the promoter was super nice, super great dude. Um, you know, he was buying us drinks before the show, just being really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, just a bro, right? And we played, and they had left tables and chairs in front of the the stage, and there was a woman on her cell phone during our set who kept shushing us <laughs> and we were not a quiet band right but this woman would look look so pissed off like we were in her living room playing right. a rock show um so after the after we played we went and we you know we talked to the rotor and he said oh you guys want to stay with me tonight and we were super relieved because we didn't know what we said thanks so much and this guy at the bar turns around and he goes no nah, man you got to stay with me. My house is like a hotel for bands. Everyone stays there. It's fucking awesome. And at that point, I should have just been like, no, of course not. Um, but the promoter said, oh, you want to go stay with this guy? And he was like, we've got tons of space. And said, well, you know, I don't have that much space. So if this, so maybe, maybe go stay with this guy. So this, this guy introduces us. He says that he's in a band called Blood Cow. Um, Love them. And yeah, they're, they're the BLD in Omaha. Yeah. Big local draw. So we, we pile in. I think half of us go in his van. Half of us go in our Chevy Tahoe. Uh-huh. We pull up to the blood cow house. And the first thing we notice is that there's this big sand pit in the backyard just <laughs> flecked with 
fossilized dog shit. <laughs> just like they haven't cleaned this out in probably 70 years. Right. Um, like some dog took a shit when that house was built and it, they, they just left it there. <laughs> so we get into the house and the first thing we notice inside the house is the smell. There's a bad smell, a really bad smell. Um, and the house is, of course, disgusting and filthy. <laughs> right. So we get into the kitchen. He goes, got to try this drink I made. It's called Hitler's Balls. <laughs> and it's this giant vat of pickle brine with vodka and an egg in it. Blood um, cow. Blood cow. <laughs> I'm not even getting started with yeah. this. So... <laughs> At a, so I sort of suss out that this is going to be a weird, bad night. Right. And I said, you know, I'm so tired. And I also wanted to make sure I got the best accommodations sure. in this house, whatever. That, so I'm so tired. I think I'm just going to, you know, take a handful of NyQuil and go to sleep. Right. So the gentleman from Blood Cow, he says, yeah, just let me show you where you guys are staying. So he takes us down to the practice space where the smell is even worse. <laughs> there are porn magazines everywhere, just on the floor, Porn nice. magazines that have clearly been handled aggressively. <laughs> um, and empty beer cans. Right. He's and a man who's not aware of the internet. Yes. <laughs> and he says, yeah, just clear yourself a place on the floor and go to sleep. I was like, all right, where's the bathroom? And he's like, oh, you probably can smell that. Both of the toilets are backed up. We don't really have a working bathroom right now. <laughs> Hotel for bands. Hotel for bands. So I, 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 I took like 10 NyQuil and just passed out. But apparently... After I went to sleep, it got really weird, <laughs> um, as I found out when my bandmates the next morning looked like they had been traumatized, which, in fact, they had. So after I went to sleep, uh, this guy had called up his bandmates and some friends of theirs to have a, a party. <laughs> this party, so... This is already, at what time are we talking? Like, like, two in the morning. Yeah. You may remember a sand pit full of dog shit that I described. Sure. Apparently, this is a wrestling pit. And apparently they invited a very large woman over to wrestle them in this pit full of sand and dog shit. So that happened. And then our bass player, guitar player, and keyboard player went to sleep. They had right. had enough. Our drummer was going to go to sleep. And the guy from the guy says, no, 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 you're not going to sleep. We have something we have to do, you and me. Um, so he sits our drummer down. And they watch a live DVD of the band Toto together. <laughs> I'm interested. Yeah. <laughs> Keep talking. Yeah. Now you're speaking our language. You're talking. So, you're actually talking it too. So uh, I, big Toto pretty fan. big Toto fan. <laughs> so I, I slept through all of this. I wake up. Everybody just looks horrified, and we're ready to get the fuck out of there. I don't think anybody slept very well. So we go and we go to say goodbye to to our friend from Blood Cow. He's in his under he's a, he's a big guy he's just in his underwear blanket like half over him in some impossible really <laughs> uncomfortable looking position we um we say hey it was nice you know it was really nice thank you so much and he goes he kind of looks around and he goes Woo -wee! it smells in here i smell like some aids this morning which of you motherfuckers <laughs> took a shit in my mouth um <laughs> And we said, all right. And he goes, no, let's go to breakfast. Come on. Oh. We gotta go. So we, we didn't want to be rude to our hosts. So we said, all right, let's go to breakfast. So he takes us to a family restaurant. This, this you know, Omaha right. family diner situation. It's packed. We're at a table surrounded by moms and kids who probably love Jesus very, very much. Sure. And 
we're just waiting for i mean and already this guy looks disgusting and smells awful um <laughs> so we order our food he ordered chicken fried steak for breakfast for breakfast yeah. Which I, I'm, I've done that. But, <laughs> hell, I'll do that right now. But the chicken fried steak arrives, and he once again goes, Hoo-wee! and he says, he just looks around and says, as loudly, I think, as he possibly could, this smells like a bag lady's pussy. <laughs> what? A bag wow. lady or a bad A lady? bag lady. <laughs> wow. So, nice. Which is kind of retro, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> a, a term for... Homeless women. So wait, so was this a first U.S. tour? I think this was the second tour. Because uh, and how was the Toto DVD? (laughs) I wasn't. I wasn't there for it. Uh, I missed the best part of the night. Yeah, Yeah, was I Uh, playing? There was also a shrine to Phil Collins in the in the Blood Cow House. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes you got to put up with some stuff. (laughs) Hey, you know the stories that's not so bad anymore. And just and here's here's the really really is a rock hotel. Here's the really amazing part. Blood Cow is so confusing. When we when we were booking our next tour. And we had a, a day off between Chicago and Denver. We looked up Blood Cow because we wanted to see if we could get a show with them. <laughs> and do they, they have no web presence we whatsoever? We could not find them anymore. <laughs> That's a well, okay. Now, this that brings up a couple of interesting points. Um, and I asked why it was your first tour. Because I remember on our first U.S. tour, the first when we played in Seattle and that was the first place where we actually knew someone and we stayed with her and we took her out for breakfast the next morning. And then like immediately after that, as we're driving to the next town, we're like, okay, like that doesn't happen again. <laughs> like, like this is not us like treating our friends. Oh, and then, so we give them a shirt and a CD. It, yeah, yeah, exactly. Was, that's the payment. <laughs> but and then, a nice note. And a but then we nice also, note. we also <laughs> realized there were, there were times where let's say you're staying in a, in a weird place or you know sometimes you just maybe you write a little notes thanks and then you get out of there yeah like rather than you know waking up mr blood cow and did yeah. you sleep okay you know like we just you know it's like sometimes you just yeah we got places the fear that blood cow will show up at the <laughs> next gig uh or yeah. like the next round and be like dudes <laughs> What the fuck? Um, <laughs> that is so that's 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 a combination shitty show and probably the worst accommodations yeah, we had, had it was I would say it was it was mercifully rare that those two things coincided. Right. We had a lot of bad shows. We had one night, one of the worst shows on our first tour. And, and our first tour was largely learning what it means to be a shitty band on tour. Mm-hmm. Sure. Because the first four shows of that tour were with Oxford Collapse and Constantine's and they were all sold out and they were great. You know, it was us and two great bands and the crowds were super amazing. And then our first show after that was at a place called the Taco Ninja and Cafe Bourbon Street. They're one place with two identities. Wait, um, where is that? In Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. And we were playing with a band called the Volvonics, <laughs> who one of the gentlemen from the Volvonics worked at the Taco Ninja sure. and was not going to let us forget about that. We were on his turf. So... <laughs> He kept, Got a whole tight to that turf when you live there, though. Yeah, he, he kept moving us around in the order, like, "Yeah, you guys are playing third. And we'd be like, oh, all, all right, <laughs> yeah, I'm in the Volvonics. I work here. All right, dude, that's cool. Uh, Can I get a taco? Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, um, speaking of which, <laughs> how are the Chalupas today? Yeah. And this entire experience of being on tour, we kind of kept realizing that maybe this wasn't 
this awesome, glamorous, you know, because when you're <laughs> right. young, we got a headlining show. That means that people must be interested. Um, sometimes you headline, sometimes you play last. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it just, true. so that show was really rough. The show, one of the shows we were most excited about, we got, we got a show at Rubber Gloves in Denton, Texas. Yep. Yeah. With, um, with the Rosebuds. Mm-hmm. I love that band. They're super nice. And it was, you know, and I felt like I had done a good job because I cold emailed them and I had set up a whole website. So wait, did you book a lot of the early yes, tours I booked, yourself? I booked the first tour. And the only reason I think we got booked is that we had opened for the arcade fire at mm-hmm. one point. So the website that I put together to send to booking agents was basically just a picture of the marquee that said arcade fire, get him, eat him. Right. Um, and I think that was enough to get us booked at a lot of places sure. when people weren't paying that much attention. Um, but we, we got to, and, and I, there's a whole genre of sound guy related terrible show stories. <laughs> um, we got to rubber gloves and the sound guy was wearing like a Jamaraquai hat. <laughs> Which was just immediately, you could smell the bad show, just like stink lines coming off of that hat. And, um, and so even by this point, we, we always brought our own DI boxes because sometimes a club doesn't have them. There's was this whole, after the, 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 uh, the, this was before the shock. The shock. This was okay. like three days before the shock. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so, you know, I started setting up and the sound guy goes, no, 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 no. I've got DIs. Don't worry about it. So he had those Behringer active DIs, the, uh-huh. the silver ones with the rubber legs on them that everybody mm-hmm. had at one point. We start playing, and this was a point in our band when almost all the singing I was doing was through an effects processor. And that was going through the DI. So after our second song, the DI just fizzles out. Right. And the sound guy goes, all right, killed that channel, keep going. Well, we kind of need that. He goes, fine, switch it out with one of my DIs. So I switched it out. Um, when you switch out an active DI for a passive DI, the level usually drops, which right. is something that you'd think a sound guy would expect, but not Mr. Funky Hat, who, <laughs> who was like, the level just got way lower. And this is all happening over while the, our friend, uh, yeah, the, the, he goes, I'm not bothering with this. The channel's off. Figure it out. So we played about two more shows. Two more songs, rather. We were just so pissed off and so mad. Right. And we stormed out of there. But we wound up staying with our friend Ben, who's an awesome, awesome guy. And, like, we just had a great night. Bad we, show, we, good night. Bad show, good night. We just turned it around. DEIs are, were a constant fight I would have with uh-huh. every sound person. Uh, mostly because, like, I personally just thought, like, whatever my distortion pedal was, the way it went through with my Ampeg never sounded right. Yep. Uh, and so I constantly would just be like, look, I just, I, I know how this works. I think if you just mic my cab, it's going to sound so much better. It's like, I don't know, man. It's not, I think I kind of want to do a mix. <laughs> the like, mix. Always they like, always want right, to do the mix. I know you want to, but I'm just telling you what's going to work. It's like, I, this is a different system than ones you've ever dealt with. Yeah. Uh, and it's a constant fight. I also hated rubber gloves. Okay. I had one of the worst shows ever there. Same deal. Like sound guy was terrible. Uh, but that was, I think I brought up for that was the place where I think we were going to South by South by Southwest. Yep. So we toured down. Sure. Uh, and we toured down, I think with TV on the radio for mm-hmm. that one. So shows were good. It was right when they were blowing up. It was, I think it's that tour that it was depressing because we were going to be like a 50 50 split and then it wasn't because they, <laughs> they were ma- making so much. Uh, and then on the way back. Whoever we were touring, we were with a band that was bigger, and then on the way back from South by Southwest, we were by ourselves. Yeah. So it's, you know, post-South by Southwest, post the best band experience you can have, 
post great shows playing at Denton, Texas. That's not that far yeah. from Austin. Um, and no one's there. Yeah. Yep. And the sound guy was a jerk. And I was sick of being on tour. And it's the only show I can ever remember where I usually I would be like, fuck it. I'm going to play yeah. and have fun with it. That one, I literally, I stood there and stared at the audience with a death vision <laughs> and just played. Oh, what and, audience was it? Because you can't see the, the audience the there. The four to five people yeah. that were there. Yeah. Uh, and then later, as soon as it was over, I couldn't have gotten out of that quicker. Yeah. I put yeah. myself down immediately, turned everything off, started taking my equipment off yeah. stage. We had, a show, we had a show at Rubber Gloves where I admonished the audience for like... <laughs> leaving after like the big local draw who played first of course of course and then i was i mean and and those those the the people there that ran that place were actually always very nice to us so we play there a number of times it's but, hard to play yeah, there post had, south by too like well that because every band like it's touring around else. south by southwest if you're not in a band is it sucks. for those of you who are not in band who are listening it's uh it's tough yeah we never we never did that we had actually our worst sound guy experience was in chicago uh-huh. um a, a place called the beat kitchen yeah which was Played always there really they were the people there were always really nice they were always really good about having us back after we played and right. paying us well but we played a set there and there was a really loud i think i turned on a pedal and something blew one of these guys the sound guy's speakers blew which you know is his problem not mine right and at the end of the set he said he started threatening to confiscate all of our equipment saying that because we had damaged his property he was legally entitled to confiscate all of our equipment. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That's um, on the rule books. That's just that's standard contract. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I tried as calmly as possible to explain to him that if he doesn't have, there's, for those of you who are not nerds about this stuff, there's a, a, a kind of audio processor called a limiter, right. which you usually put in place before anything that you wouldn't want to explode. Right. And a limiter makes sure that if a signal goes through that chain that is loud enough to blow up your speaker, it gets reduced in volume so your speaker doesn't blow up. It's right. a very it's kind of sound guy one oh one if you're running a big sound system. Um there was not a limiter or their limiter didn't work. And thankfully my bandmates were loading out our stuff while this guy was ostensibly mulling over whether or not to steal our <laughs> shitty equipment. Um, but that was just one of the weirds. We also had, when we played at the Rock and Roll Hotel. <laughs> they in, just keep coming. Oh, I yeah. love it. It's like, and we played at the Rock and Roll Hotel in D.C., which is a really nice club. Mm-hmm. It was a new club yeah, and a nice club. Right. We played there once. And people yeah. we were, were kind of. To play there, didn't work. Yeah. People were kind of like, I heard they got clear channel money, man. Um, but their sound guy was so profesh that right. we just <laughs> fucking hated him. Pro, he, pro gear, pro two. Pro gear. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he had, I think he said he had been like the, you know, the, some kind of tech for in sync or something uh-huh. and our drummer you know we didn't we didn't keep our drums in tip-top shape we didn't tune them right. we're just some shitty band and our drummer starts checking in the sound guy kind of goes like whoa hey there <laughs> yikes whoa you mind if i <laughs> and we just were like fuck this guy yeah. what like who do you what do you think this is like T- tuning drums though is is, is absurd well, if it's not absurd if you're recording or if you're just tuning it to make to make it. Or yeah, let me rephrase it because Dan, our drummer, like he just like he just blindly would turn yeah, the sure. key. Like he's like, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah I don't I, know how to right, say it. Like, like, like I don't understand how this works. Yeah, it's but it was just one of those. I think I think the genesis for most bad shows is when different people participating in the show have very different ideas of what the show right. is. Yeah. 
Right. And we had, and that could be something as specific and personal as when we played in Detroit opening for the Wrens, which was a great show. Uh-huh. The sound guy cut us off after four songs because for him, the show was something that he had to get through before he could call his ex-girlfriend to try to win her affections back. He explained this to our friend Charles from the Wrens afterwards, who is a buddy of ours and said, Hey, why did you cut? He said, gotta get out of here on time, man. I just realized my ex-girlfriend is the one. Jesus Christ. So, so look, Matt, you, I mean, the, the, the story after story. I mean, you, you've, yeah. you've, you, it suffice to say you've had your fair share of memorably shitty shows. Oh, yes. And Get Him, Eat Him ceased to be a band. In uh, 2009. 2009, or right before Oxford Collapse did. And, you know, since that time and during that time, I mean, you're, you're an accomplished writer. You, you've written for Pitchfork, for AV Club, for a number of other sites. You've, you've authored a 33 and a third book. This is all true. I mean, this Which will all, Which the, 33 and a third? The Elliot Smith. Uh, oh, great. Um, and, you know, you're still doing music in, in certain capacity. You're yes. an accomplished pr- producer. You've worked on some great, great material. Um, but, you know, you're not. <laughs> Like what? <laughs> well, uh, like what great material? Full full discretion, Matt. Full discretion. Matt has been uh, working with me on some of my uh, my commercial work. Oh, well. Um, but I want we want to you know this is this is this is a question that we that we that we delve into this idea of like you're not doing it the same way you once right. were. Oh God, no. Right. And <laughs> I know you have some some pretty uh, you know kind of uh, some ideas. As to why, or like, you know, we, we've talked about this before. So the moment that it all kind of came into focus, into horrible, brutal focus for me, was at the end of our 2006 tour, we opened for Beirut mm-hmm. for four shows. When we had booked that tour, Beirut hadn't released their first album yet. It was just some band that I liked that my friend Ben was putting out, and I thought that it was going to get pretty popular maybe, right. so I invited them and another band um, to open for us. Then suddenly Beirut blew up, um, which yeah. I, I think was <laughs> inevitable. In uh, for the listener, not the not, not <laughs> the uh, city. Uh, but, yeah, context. Uh, but but there's a band called Beirut. The band called Beirut became very popular. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> and the first thing that happened was the manager for the other band, who I don't want to name because they're friends of mine, and this did not reflect on them. Well, not entirely. Um, it didn't reflect. It didn't. This is so tricky because when somebody is an asshole on your behalf, right. it both does and does not reflect on you right, in a way right. that is sort of unique to this universe. Because they're representing you, but also a lot of times you don't know exactly. Right. And the band did not know that any of this was happening. Right. But their manager sent our booking agent a very strongly worded email basically saying, this band does not play second of four. This band is main support for Beirut now. We want all of Get Him Him's money. We want top billing. And our response was just no. Right. So she actually pulled the band off of all these bills, then told them this had happened, and they said something to the effect of, you pulled us off of shows with Beirut that our friends invited us to play. Right. Because we didn't get billing that you found appropriate. Right. Um, so that was my first kind of sense that once things reach a certain level, it goes from one kind of shitty to another kind of shitty. Yeah. Um, and then when we actually played those shows, it was the end of a, of a pretty long tour, of a 28-day tour. We were playing the best shows we had ever played. Sure. I'm sure you tour guys type. both know that experience where you finish playing a song and you feel like you've been running a marathon and you have to slow down. You've got yeah. so much momentum behind you. It's all 
muscle memory. So you're not even trying to remember the song. You're just entirely in the moment. Yeah. We played these songs. We played the set opening for Beirut. We would finish and people just fucking hated the shit out of us so hard. <laughs> I've never been in a room where people hated me more, I right. think. And I've been in rooms where people, I'm a pitchfork writer for fuck's sake. I've sure. been in rooms where people have hated me, but the, the moment of brutal, horrific clarity was, so we would play, people would roll their eyes and check their phones and occasionally blog from there about how this band doesn't even seem to realize that nobody likes them. Right. Um, and then I would go to the merch table, hoping that we would sell some merch. <laughs> we did not sell any merch, but everybody would go. So Beirut would start playing, and they'd play the one or two songs that everyone knew from blogs. Right. And then they'd keep playing, and people would start making their way back towards the merch table. Mm -hmm. And they'd say, Beirut is my favorite band. I want five t-shirts. And I was legitimately sort of naively confused by this at first because your favorite band is playing music 50 right. feet behind you and you're back here telling me that they're your favorite band. Um, what, what I think is true now for a lot of people going to shows and which is a shame, people know exactly what songs they want to hear and what band they like before right. they go to the show. Right. And if you are not that band and you are not playing those songs, yeah. or if you are that band mm -hmm. and you're not playing those songs for that matter, yeah. it does not matter what you do. It does not matter if you put on the best, most incredible, tight, fiery rock set of right. your life. People are there to see a very specific set of things, which I think is largely a natural side effect of people consuming music in a way where everything is on demand. You can right. always get exactly what you want if something yeah. is not exactly it's, what it's you want. It's almost like a weird indie version of, you know, the the kind of normals. Like, yep. you have 10 CDs. You know, if you look at their collections, like, they only have 10 CDs. Yeah. And, like, off of those, it's, like, a couple best ofs. Yep. And then in there, they're like, yeah, no, I love this band. But I just kind of, like, well, use it, like, that, yeah. con that vague concept. So it's like, yeah, this is weird. And that, that doesn't jive with me it doesn't make sense like you know in my way and that's fine people can understand stuff how they want yep uh but you know I, I think especially like we were in bands where we're playing because we love music and are on the hunt for more like good mu and more music like yeah. you know more interesting music yeah. and and full albums not just like this is the one song that i like right now yep and almost like it's a weird it's a you know indie rock version of like uh you know Hip hop fan who, but but like the hip hop fan who only likes like the the track that's right now, yeah, like yep. the one that's. Well, right it's now. you know people for the most part. A lot of people enjoy being told this is what you should be listening right. to. This is the way your band should look. Right. This is you know, and people get very comfortable with being uh being dictated to. Yeah. So I because I remember getting press about people like these guys dress weird. You know, it's like like like. You know, these guys look weird. They're not photogenic. You know, all this, all this stuff that you would think in a, in a, in a seemingly open-minded, forward-thinking, you know, alternative world that people wouldn't give a fuck about this right. stuff. I, but they I never, totally did. They I never totally knew did. it was so hard. Cause I know for me, like in Panthers, like it was like both like, it felt always like it, we weren't like punk and not like for the punks anymore. Sure. Yeah. They were annoyed that we were doing whatever. And then. 
you know, Village Voice hated us and like we got like lowest review at like on Pitchfork. Like it was just like this um, whole like Matt did not write that right, but it was this whole like kind of in between where I was just kind of like I don't. I'm still kind of just approaching this from how I like music. Like I'm just playing music. Like and then I'm all of a sudden when you're yeah, like you said, you're dealing with like that type of journalism of just like oh you're gonna think about those things yeah. that I'm not thinking yeah. about. Like they look like this or, you know, all these other bands are, you're angry at the scene or this or yeah. that. And, you know, but, and then that version that exists in the punk world too, to an extent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, uh, I think it exists. Of course. Yeah. It yeah. Just, it exists everywhere. It was, but, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. And I was just gonna say it was especially weird for us when we received press because I am a writer mm-hmm. and I think a lot of people assumed that we were much more deliberate than we were right. in what we were trying to signify and if we were trying to be a corrective to other things that were happening or if we were very explicitly trying to be in a lineage with certain other right. bands, which, you know, for us, we, I think where we started and where we ended up you know, I think when we started, we were very much like, we're going to be like Brainiac and we're going to be spazzy and sure. weird. And we landed somewhere totally different, which was, which I think is organically what happens with yeah. every band. And I think one of the hardest realities to face as a band is that the things that get you press and excitement early on are often the things that are the most contrived or the most defensive or the things that as you mature as a band, you're going to move away from. Right. Mm-hmm. So as you get better, you're moving away from the things that people latched onto early on right. to good point, get yeah. you attention and to create this air of excitement. Right. So you wind up in this position, and I think this happened to Oxford Collapse too, where you guys made your best record at a time when people had kind of already gotten over Oxford Collapse. Mm-hmm. And they were over, oh, you know, it sounds like old indie rock, which isn't yeah. even really what sure, it is. Yeah. But once that gets written and that becomes the thing about your band, which for us was they're spazzy and they use a vocoder. When we were, you know, by our second record, I think we were 10 times better than our first record, but we had gone far enough away from those initial things, which were all very contrived and defensive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so that when we came into our own as a band, we found that everyone had already left. Right. Yeah. And that's a testament to the way people do consume music now nowadays and you know the fact that people don't seem to have the patience well they right. don't need to, to grow yeah you because know, you're right they there don't is no need to. to yeah i mean when i was a kid i would spend my allowance on a cd mm-hmm. and i was gonna find a way to like that cd yeah oh yeah i mean a yeah. lot of my biggest i remember when rem's new adventures and hi-fi came out i thought uh-huh. that record sucked at first yeah but over time i you know i spent 20 bucks on that yeah thing. exactly i was gonna put the time and i was invested enough in the band not just in yeah. a song right or a handful of songs. I was a fan of this band and I was going to do the work and absorb and understand the language of this particular record in a way right. which I think not only sort of reinvested me in that band, but made me a better listener. Right. Because I wasn't so stuck in this one set of gestures I liked. Right. I was actually able to hear beyond that yeah. because I had an incentive to. And yeah. nowadays, I think if you don't like something, you're it's your one click away from yeah, exactly. everything yeah. else. You don't have the, you know, and it's, it's, it sucks because you don't, you don't want to do the, like, the old man, like, back in my day thing. Yeah. But there is that old man back in my day thing. Yeah. Like, you know, there was an excitement that I still have for music, but there was an excitement when you're like, oh, this band has other records. Yeah. Like, this band, like, you know, when I found out that At the Gates had, like, yeah. four records before Slaughter of the Soul, uh-huh. like, but that was a consistent when I would, you know, there's a reason I had, 
tapes of a lot of like the hardcore stuff I got into yep. because I that's the money I had. So I would pay for the tape first, and then all of a sudden be like, "Oh wait, they have other records. Like I yeah. need to get this one and this one, this one." Yeah, it's it's uh, the, the 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 idea of not being privy to an entire discography, right? In one click, and and the and the process of I mean, you can work your way through it now. Because I've certainly sitting seen myself do that, like especially yeah. when it was okay, easier yeah, with Mediafire and Sensepace when yeah. those weren't shut down. The especially with like one man black metal records, like when all of a sudden you find out you're like. Oh, right. I love this passage de Vare. Oh, fuck. He has like 15 records. Yep. I'm going to get them all right now yeah. and then never listen to them. Yeah. Like, that, yeah. Like, it's... oh, Vinterkite, you've got literally 40 records <laughs> and I'm going to get them literally yeah. all right now. Yeah. I think, I think one of the things that makes that hardest for touring musicians and for anybody playing shows, and I've seen this in a lot of bands I've, I've played in and been friends with is that I think you still cling to this idea that when you play the big show, mm-hmm. when you get your big break, when you open for that band you love, something's going to happen. Right. That somehow somebody's going to discover you or a band's fan base is going to adopt you yeah. and that suddenly something's going to happen. I mean, I think one of the hardest things to come to terms with is that there really are very few, if any, important shows. Yes. And when you're starting out and when you're building an audience, you know, you get that first gig opening for whomever right. or you play at whatever club and you think, oh, my God, everything's about to change. Something is going to happen. We're going to play this show and then something happens. And I've seen it so many times or or played that show so many times where you play that show you play okay, but not your best because right. maybe you're not used to playing in that big a space. Maybe you get nervous. Right. The show never goes how you think it's going to go. And even if it does in terms of your performance, the show's over and you're the same shitty band and right. nothing I, has happened. Nothing I, has changed. I, I, no, I think that that's happened to everyone in this room. Yeah. On our first tour in 2004, we played shows with Franz Ferdinand at the height of their... Yep. Uh, their their fame only right. because we had played one of their first New York shows and those guys they were pretty cool we had similar tastes we, um, we've talked about before. yeah and it's, it's like you, oddly like you, uh, you know in you, my opinion it's oddly like feeds into the kind of American mythology yeah like it's it, because we don't have a history here like we you know we've got like the American West. Uh, but our mythology has become the American dream and the American dream being the Horatio Alger. You will have uh, yeah. this, like that you will be, someone will find you and you will rise yourself up in, in our terms or in, you know, the terms we grew up with. It's, it's the way I always think about it. And it's something my dad said actually is the Quentin Tarantino model where, you know, when I was in film school, like everyone's like, I'm going to be Quentin Tarantino. I'm going to work in a, you know, video store. Someone's just going to kind of find my script and then I'll become this life changing Yep. Film director. That was Quentin Tarantino. That was that was one, one person guy out who of was very lucky, and that's it. Yeah. It's not happening. It's not the lottery. Like, and you know, I think it's treating almost like, yeah, you've got this idea of like movies and books of what we've read of just like this is what will happen. You'll have that yeah. one big show. And I think that's part of why the idea of paying your dues is also so dangerous, right? Because that also suggests that if you thanklessly destroy your life for long enough, like right. if you go enough years just fucking over your own life in every conceivable way that at a certain point you're owed something right and as soon as you get that sense that you're owed something you're sunk like that's it you're completely doomed because when you're a musician who goes in the world expecting something of it you a become an asshole Mm -hmm. and b you are just constantly disappointed and you know i'm glad i toured because playing music every night was amazing because it made us a better band. Playing right. music every night, yeah. we got to test out ideas. Some of our, you know, it's a great way to 
to develop material and to. But you to, all, I, I, even more base level, you got to see the country. You got to do uh, yeah. something that not a whole lot of people yeah, get to I'm do. Yeah, I'm glad I got to do, and, and I'm glad I got to do the, got to have that experience when I could, when yeah. I was in college and I didn't have an apartment to pay rent for and I didn't have adult responsibilities yeah. in that same way. I mean, I'm really glad I got the opportunity to do that. But a lot of the time when friends who are young and in a similar situation to the one I was in ask if they should go on tour, my answer is very clearly only if you want the experience. Right. If you want to have the experience of doing this, then do it. But you're not really going to build an audience because right. as we, I think, all agree, people go out to see the bands they already know that they want to see. Right. And the idea that if you're a really good live band, you're suddenly going to get discovered is not true. And right. the idea that you need to build an audience of humans in a room before you can build an audience for your recorded music is right. not even true. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you, everything happens so quickly and is so fleeting. When we did our, our winter tour in January of 2006, we put out a, a tour EP before that, and I kind of gamed a bunch of music blogs where I emailed about five of them and told them I had emailed a different one with the song five minutes ago. <laughs> so everybody fell all over themselves trying to post this song first. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it was that easy. And we, you know, we were the most blogged about band on MB3 blogs for a week on elbows back when you would yeah. use elbows right. to track that stuff. And, um, we started, you know, I was tracking page views and stuff and our tour page was getting like 10,000 page views a day. It was amazing. And the first maybe three or four shows of that tour were well attended. And then it all zeroed out. Yeah, immediately. Yeah. So even when you, even when you think you're going in the right direction, the actual means by which a you know a band like Franz Ferdinand becomes Franz Ferdinand or TV on the radio becomes TV on the radio, it is so up to a weird mixture of totally external things that right. nobody that no one person. I mean, writing for Pitchfork, it's like I would not be in a position to even king make a band if you paid me $10,000 and right. I wanted to. Mm-hmm. There are so many other things that need to be in place. I mean, I've given bands that I love really high scores. I, sure. you know, I, I this, this band, the Capstan Shafts, who I actually did a record with. Before I did that record, I gave, I reviewed three of their albums at once on Pitchfork and I gave one of them high eight, I think. And I emailed the guy who, I had emailed the guy whose label put it out beforehand saying, Hey, you know, not to disclose anything, but your online store is broken and you might want to fix it before next week. Mm-hmm. He told me he got three sales. All right. You know, I've been doing my solo music, um, dot com, <laughs> And, you know, a lot of my, a lot of people I know who are music writers have been really supportive and amazing. I put up both of the singles I've done $1 for two songs each on Bandcamp. They got posted on Stereo Gum, yeah. and I sold, I think, one copy of one of them <laughs> right. to somebody who's not a close personal yeah. friend. Right. It's just it's I, it's so hard. I mean, it's something like it's something you deal with in all of every aspect. Like I think I deal with it in comedy stuff too of stressing, like because you get this like, oh, but if I get this one video, yep, and I'll get a lot of views on it, but at the end, then you'll be like, great, you got that one. And hopefully it works out for some other things, but you never know because it's all out of your hands. Everything's yep, kind everything of out, of, exact, out exactly. of your hands. And like I think the danger, uh, the danger is to not recognize that just because you see the names of people on the internet a lot uh, doesn't mean that 
they aren't going home after tour to Barbeck. Yep. Oh, exactly. Which is the comet. Like, and it's hard because I think it's just a natural human thing. It's fear. Uh, and it's a natural, just like other people are doing what I want to be doing. And why, why is the world being, you know, why is the world giving it to them and not me? Yeah. Because like I see their name on this and this and this, but most of our friends are coming home. That ties in, that ties into the American myth too. Yeah. That I'm not going to, uh, uh, diffuse. Like if you want to believe that, uh, we played sold out shows because we were on Sub Pop every night and, you know, had yeah. women feeding us grapes, which is something I keep coming back to. Sure. I'm not yeah. going to, I'm not going to tell you that that didn't happen. The piece of advice I give all of my friends who are in bands who are starting out and whose goal is something like, like I have a friend in a band who said, I want to sign to Sub Pop. That's mm-hmm. my goal. I said, well, that's not really a good goal because that's something that's totally out of your control. Right. And it's something that doesn't even mean what you think it's going to mean. You never know. You might have a bad experience. People sign to great labels and have bad experiences. You never know really what that's going to mean. Right. One of the, the big aha moments for me between our first record and our second record was when I stopped thinking strategically about how we were going to make the record and just started thinking, okay, we have resources at our disposal. Who do I want to work with? Who are right. the people who've inspired me? You know, when you have, I think one of the things that a lot of young bands don't realize is that Whoever your favorite musicians are, whoever the people are who inspired you, if you call five of them, one of them will probably produce your record. Yeah. Um, five of them will probably produce your <laughs> yes. record. Um, you know, unless those people are, you know, the arcade fire or whatever. Sure. If the, the odds are, if you have any resources, if, even if you've just saved up a couple hundred bucks and if, you know, if you call somebody, maybe their day rate is 500 bucks and you can put together the money. And then you can work with somebody whose work is really meaningful to you. But right. the more you can craft the experience that's going to be the most worthwhile for you personally, right. that's all you can control. You can't control if your favorite record label is going to want to sign you. Mm-hmm. You can't control if your show is going to sell out or if Pitchfork is going to hear your album. But if you really start from the things that are meaningful to you and work from there, then at the very least... You'll make friendships that are really valuable and you'll have experiences that help you grow as a musician and you'll be able to look back and say, I'm actually really glad right. I did that. And I think the bottom line from that that we can take away is that if you want to contact Matt LeMay <laughs> or Jeff Garlock or Mike Pace, you can find us somehow. We're not going to give you our uh, con, But if, no, no, if you're intuitive yeah, enough. Of a <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Matt, we're going to just, uh, you know, round this out here. Sure. Um, there's a lot of food for thought there. Uh, you know, I think I'm looking forward to seeing the uh, listener feedback. For the, fir- for the first time ever, actually. <laughs> <laughs> because there's, I, I think we got, uh, we got to the heart of some really big things yeah. about playing in bands. Agreed. You know? Um, but a question that we ask, that we ask all of our listeners here. What do you think of the word gig? <laughs> I, I, you know, it's one of those words that I feel like is awful and exactly the way the thing that it describes is awful. You know, gig <laughs> is something where you think about, a guy with a gray ponytail and a Zildjian t-shirt saying, like, we got a gig on Tuesday. Right. And the funny thing is when you're in a young, think you're a hot shit band, you think those people are dumb. You're like, oh, yeah, the guys in the IT department of my mom's office who play at Kenny's Castaways on, right. on Wednesday, they're assholes. They're stupid. <laughs> and then you realize they're actually way smarter than you are because yeah. they're playing music with their friends who they like because they like to when they have time to do it. Yeah. So I think gig is actually a great word because it's dumb in exactly the same way that playing music in front of people is dumb. Yeah. That, <laughs> I, look, that, that, that's, that, that's a great answer. 
the last thing I can say, uh, and this is actually the only time I'll be able to see this, to say this. Get him, eat him, get home safe. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Thank, Thank you guys so much. Worst gig ever. 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 ever.